Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mercy is the mark of a great man. Oh. Oh. Guess I'm just a good man. Oh. Well, I'm all right. You are not Captain Kirk. You do not belong in charge of the Enterprise and I shall do everything in my power against you. You know what the chain of command is? It's a chain I go get and beat you with you understand who's in command here. Frequently appalled by the low regard you Earthmen have for life. Welcome to another exciting edition of um, SFP Now. Um, unfortunately, this week we, we don't really have um, a news segment as such because the interview is just uh, ringing long. <laughs> um, this week we're talking to uh, Martin Powell, who's a comics writer, um, and um, he's been writing the comic strips for the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, website. Um, we've, we've had to uh, bring this interview forward a week, um, unfortunately, due to... Um, a mishap with the show that we originally had lined up for this week, but we will be re-recording that show at some future date, hopefully. Um, so, you know, on with the show, um, and now it's time for us to introduce you to uh, Martin Powell, paleontologist, comics writer extraordinaire. Um, he slayed the dragons of Sherlock Holmes and and, well, Tarzan and, 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 and other stuff. You know, he's, he's an interesting guy. So without further ado, here's the interview. I'd like to welcome um, writer Martin Powell to the show, who's um, doing a lot of really cool stuff with, um, you know, with the Edgar, Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, website, as in he's, he's doing the Tarzan strip, the uh, John Carter strip, the, uh, oh, what, what, what are the other strips you do? You're doing loads and loads of stuff. I'm doing quite a few. I'm not doing Tarzan or John Carter, unfortunately, um, but uh, I'm doing uh, Carson of Venus, um, the Eternal Savage, the War Chief, the Cave Girl, and the Land of Time Forgotten. Those are the ones that I write. Cool. So it's only a matter of time before you do Tarzan and Don Carter. <laughs> well, I have written um, a graphic novel that's coming out from Dark Horse later this year uh, of Tarzan. Uh, but uh, uh, they do have uh, John Carter, I think, planned at a different time. But I think a more prestigious writer than I than I am uh, will write that one, probably. I have, I have some hints, but I'm not supposed to talk about it. <laughs> ah, right. Well, you know, first off, uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thanks for and, asking. And, you know, I think the first question I'd like to ask you is, um, you know, we, we were talking a little bit before before we started, and you, you, said, you told me you've got a background in, in science and paleontology. 
so I'm I'm guessing uh, the question is how do you go from that into writing in, into writing comic books and graphic novels? Um, cause it's you know it's quite an unusual route. It is. Um, I, well, you have to be a little crazy, I suppose. Uh, that helps to begin with. But like I've always said, just because I'm crazy doesn't mean I'm wrong. Um, so um, I I started. It, this to me, all this stuff, all this stuff is related to each other. Um, I became fascinated with dinosaurs first and foremost when I was probably six or seven years old, and like a lot of like a lot of kids. Uh, but I never let it go is the thing. And um, the, the deeper I got into it, the more fascinated I was. But I also started writing my own books uh, in like second grade. Um, so that was something that interested me very much. I was very much into comics and uh, I read adventure novels and things like that. And I've written prose too. I've written for animation. I've written all kinds of things. I'm writing screen, a, um, a stage play right now as well. So I, I keep my hand in everything I can. Cool. Um, but it's... Um, and beginning a new prose novel soon, a Frankenstein novel with, uh, with Leah Barrett Durham. Uh, we're going to be writing it together. Oh, I, I love, I love <laughs> Frankenstein. Yeah. yeah, so I did a graphic novel of Frankenstein back in the late 80s, which uh, is still in print. It's been gone, it's gone through many different print prints. So it's, it's always been a very influential work to me as well, the Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, so, but anyway, to answer your question, uh, I'm not sure exactly. I... <laughs> Uh, once I started uh, going to university and uh, could pick my own subjects, of course, this is what I, I, I never really set out to get a degree. I just kind of wanted the, the information, just wanted the, the knowledge, I guess. I wasn't really quite sure exactly what I was going to end up doing. And I, I was still writing stories all the time. I hadn't sold anything. Um, I was lucky enough when I was about 19, um, 18, 19, I, I became acquainted with uh, with Ray Bradbury. And uh, we became friends. And um, he was like the biggest celebrity I'd ever met at that time, you know. Um, and he was very, very supportive of me and asked asked me to send him some of my work, which I was terrified to do. He had asked me a couple of times. I'm like, why does Ray Bradbury want to look at my scribblings, you know? Because um, I knew they weren't very good, mm -hmm. uh, so I. But I, I sent it to him, and he was. Um, he gave me one of the most thorough, um, not brutal, but very, very strict critiques of all time, and it was one of the most helpful as well. Um, because he still ended up making me feel like I can actually do this. Uh, he was just kind of telling me what he felt I was doing wrong. He was absolutely correct. Um, so at the same time, I was studying paleontology. Now this was back, you know, long before Jurassic Park. <laughs> And um, there were only probably maybe a half a dozen paleontologists in the world that were making a living from it. You know, it's not like that now. You know, it's, it's, it's grown by a considerable margin. But that's what I had, uh, was looking at at the time. And I didn't really have any, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I was interested in this stuff. And uh, so I, I went out on digs and I did all this, all this stuff. You know, I've, I've lived a kind of, a, kind of interesting life in that regard. But um, one day, um, well, what happened was I wrote a story in, in class um, and the teacher didn't care for it. And uh, the assignment was basically to write a dialogue between characters without using any narrative. Just the whole story needed to be told in dialogue. Uh, interesting test. And um, so I, what I wrote was basically, basically a guy at a graveside talking to his dead wife. Um, so it's not really a, di a dialogue, it was a monologue. Although it kind of becomes a dialogue at the end, which the teacher never seemed to realize. But what the ba it's, you know, it wasn't the greatest story in the world. But basically what it was is he's talking to his dead wife. Um, clearly he's uh, mournful, and uh, the longer he talks to her, we start to, to see an evidence of guilt in him. And apparently she had um, some incurable disease and he was, you know, weary or too pained to see her suffer anymore. And so he basically put a pillow over her head and smothered her. Uh -huh. and so he's sort of apologizing for that. And then as he gets ready to walk away in true 
like EC Comics form, you know, she, her hand comes up out of the grave, grabs him, and, and she's strangling him, this rotted corpse, you know, and she's strangling him, and she's saying, you know, you know, you know why are you so scared? You're only going to die someday anyway, which is what he had said to her just a few minutes before. Well, I mean, it's not like you weren't going to die anyway, you know, mm-hmm. to justify it. So not the greatest story ever written, uh, but I didn't think it deserved the trashing that he gave me. And um, so I sent it to a friend of mine in in, uh, in Ireland, actually, at the time, uh, who was an artist, and she, uh, I just I just sent it to her, I just said, is this that bad? You know, because <laughs> I didn't know who else I could really show it to at the time. And um, she never really responded on it, but about, uh, I don't know, six months or so later, I received a, uh, a strange package from Australia, so from, uh, from Ireland to Australia. It contained a magazine called Fantastique, uh, which was a horror magazine, and the story was in there, and she had illustrated it as a comic book story, like oh, a two-page wow. comic story. So that was my first time ever being published, and uh, I was totally surprised and shocked. And there was a check in there, too, for like 200 bucks, you know, which... Uh, it may as well have been 200000 as far as I was concerned. I was just on top of the world. And and that kind of gave me the confidence, I guess, to try it again. And I focused, started focusing more on comics. I was I never approached comics before because I really thought it was kind of like trying to break into Hollywood. I just didn't think I was capable of it. Um, but it worked, and I wasn't getting anywhere with my prose at the time. Later on, I started selling prose. But um, I, I sent out other comic stuff, and, and one thing after another clicked. And they, they were little short little stories and anthologies, mostly. And then one day I decided I wanted to try something longer, and so I wrote. Um, I was very keen on Sherlock Holmes at the time, and now this was the middle '80s when mm-hmm. this was going on. So just to give you an idea of the time period, uh, so I wrote a story, um, a graphic novel called uh, Scarlet and Gaslight, um, which is a Sherlock Holmes Dracula story. Um, other writers have done this, but I was the first to do it as a graphic novel, and it's an original story. I didn't base it on anybody else's idea. Is it still available? That because it, you know it says graphic novel, and I'm thinking hmm. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, you can find it. Uh, on my author's page, for example, it's it's contained in, in um, a collection that Moonstone did that's called Sherlock Holmes Mysteries, Volume 1. Uh-huh. That has my um, Scarlet and Gaslight and the other one I did after that, which is A Case of Blind Fear, which has Sherlock Holmes meeting H.G. Wells' Invisible Man. Oh, I definitely want to get that then, because I, you know, I, love, I love anything like that where you where you have um, where you have real-life people thrown into the mix. Yeah, that's the one that I actually prefer of the two myself. It's the second one I did. I just think it's a better story story and um, so I was glad that they that they went ahead and did that. But uh, but the, you know, the 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 Holmes piece was was a success. It sold out. It, it it was nominated for a major award at the time, which is just one of the very first things I ever did. So this was a, a terrific way to start, you know, a, a writing career, which I didn't really realize a year or so before that that that's what I had in mind for myself. But looking back on it, that's that's you know surely that's what I was planning to do. I just didn't know I just didn't know if I really ever could or knew how is all. It's pretty cool that you know one of your one of your your earliest works in this Sherlock Holmes thing. You, you know, you get you get nominated for the Eisner Award. You know, yeah, well, it was it was crazy. You know, I mean, I was just crazy. I remember the the uh, my editor calling me up and telling me about it. And he was giddy over it, you know, and immediately wanted something else from me right then and there. And I didn't know quite what to say. Um, but the thing about Scarlet and Gaslight too, and all the earlier home stuff that I did, was that was all um, um, uh, acknowledged and uh, approved by the Conan Doyle estate at the time. Um, so it's considered kind of part of the official, you know, uh, Sherlock Holmes stuff. I mean, he's public domain now, so they say. There's still a little bit of a confusion about that, um, but I think it is. Um, but back in back in the '80s, uh, he wasn't public domain yet. You you had to get permission from the Conan Doyle estate or you could get sued. So uh, the publisher fortunately took care of that and paid them what they wanted. And uh, and I talked to um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's daughter, uh, Lady uh, uh, Jean Conan Doyle. She called me 
uh, one day out of the blue, we talked for about 40 minutes, and it was that was quite memorable, actually. Um, we didn't talk much about my story at all, although she thought it was, as she put it, as she put it, she said she thought it was lovely. I was kind of afraid because I took a little bit of, I took a few liberties with Holmes in that, that I was, but no one's ever called me on it. Uh, I, I gave him a, maybe a little bit more personality um, than we were seeing at the time, and uh, since it was a graphic novel, I could internalize him a little bit so the reader is a little bit more aware of what's going on in his head, because we're never really privy to that in the actual stories. I mean, Holmes is very, very much an enigma. Yeah, I mean, so I want to just show that he actually, you know, had similar thoughts and feelings that we do, you know, um, the to make him a little bit more sympathetic. Um, I see Sherlock Holmes as a rather tragic character, actually. Um, yeah, he's, he's kind of a very lonely character, yes, in a, in a sense. So. I mean, what you know, when you think about it, Watson's his only friend. Mm -hmm. um, his relationship with his older brother is kind of dysfunctional. Yes. And, you know, and he, he, he doesn't see... He doesn't really see anyone as his equal. You know, no, he's so... no, and, and, he has, and, and that's not a boast. He has he has good reason to feel that way. Um, and he really is what he thinks he is, which is you know hardly that's that's unheard of really uh, mm -hmm. among us as human beings. I mean, most all of us either have really low self-esteem or we're out of control, you know, in the opposite direction. Uh, but Sherlock Holmes, um, he knew he was brilliant. You know, he knew it. And I don't think he saw it as a gift. Yeah, um, I mean, it's 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 kind of it's an interesting thing because. Um, a number of years back, when Sherlock first came out, you know, the TV series, which, um, you know, it's pretty good. Oh, the last series, I, I didn't particularly like the last series. Yeah. Um, but a couple of years back, I got to interview Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss oh. um, about Sherlock when it first came out. And one of the questions I asked, because I knew Stephen Moffat, you know, was, was, he was doing Doctor Who at the time still, and... I figured, you know, it's it's kind of funny because it's kind of similarities between between Sherlock Holmes and, and Doctor Who, and it'd be interesting to see <laughs> those two together. And um, and and Moffat just turned around and says, "Well, it would would be quite interesting, but you know, the the two would probably cancel each other out because Holmes, you know, is so smart. He kind of he, he's almost um, aspiring to sort of like like Godhood in 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 many ways." Whereas, um, whereas you got the doctor who, you know, in in our eyes, is so sort of very godlike, and he he's aspiring to try and be more human. Right. So, so you know, so the complete opposites. They in, are. In a sense. Um, and, you know, Holmes. I've always felt, you know, he the one thing that he has going for him is he found a niche for what he can do. Um, you know, because he really this guy wouldn't can't he wouldn't fit in anywhere else in society. Uh, he kind of admits that. I mean, this is a guy who really, at a glance, can tell you all about yourself. I mean, at a literal glance. Mm -hmm. So uh, his mind works that fast. Um, there are people kind of like that. I've met some over the years, and they're creepy. You know, I mean, I I, I used to have uh, um, I wouldn't call them nightmares, but they were unpleasant dreams uh, of being like seated 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 across from Holmes at a dinner party, and it was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, because I knew that this guy's looking at me and he knows more about me than I really am comfortable with, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, that was, I mean, I, I, I always viewed him as, I mean, he's a heroic figure, certainly. Uh, but I think that he um, he's also a rather tragic figure. I, I gave some hints that he had a very uh, uh, traumatic past that, you know, we, we never really know what, what it was. But something made him into what he is. Um, and he's always that smart, probably, but uh, that may have been part of the problem, really. Um, I mean, I don't know how it, how it is uh, in England, but uh, over here... 
at least when I was growing up, um, if you were a clever kid or talented, that wasn't a good thing uh, among your peers. They were jealous and you got picked on a lot. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the smart kid in class was never really admired. You know, they were the one that was made fun of. Um, if you were a sports hero or something, that was a whole different thing. But if you uh, were just a really uh, smart uh, academia, you know, ac- academic uh, level uh, scholar or something, nobody thought that was cool. Yeah, um, it's. Um, I think I think it's probably the same now, and it's probably the same in England because um, you know, it's you know. But I think also we're now in the age of the geek, so it's kind of like um, I think I think I think people's acceptance is 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 it's getting there, but it is still it's, people are still kind of ostracized for being smart. I sure hope that something's happening with it because I, I've never quite understood that. I've always thought that was very counterproductive evolutionary wise. You know that uh, I mean we owe our existence, we owe the comfort, the com- whatever comfort we have as human beings is really uh, we owe to a very few number of us. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's uh, most people just want to live their lives fairly quietly and don't want any. You know, they don't really want to hurt anybody. They don't want to. Any, they don't want to be interfered with. But they're not really giving anything back, and um, and but there's been these few people that have been just remarkable um, that uh, on an almost unearthly basis. I mean, how did you know? How how did someone like Sir Isaac Newton know the things he knew? I mean, uh, he invented calculus. How does one do that? Um, yeah. I mean, I can't conceive of it. I mean, I really don't understand. You know what these people are <laughs> but i feel like a, a monkey next to them you know yeah it's, it's also you know when you invent stuff like that um how do you get other people behind you to back it yeah, a lot of times know? they don't i mean and sometimes they it. end up in jail and uh and ridiculed and you know almost every advanced scientific theory that becomes reality at one time was ridiculed and Sometimes, uh, you know, people like Galileo were thrown in, j- in prison and almost threatened with execution. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like uh, you know, it's a bit like Alexander Graham Bell. He invented a telephone, right? And um, right, you know, he right. was trying to invent a hearing aid for his, for his, for his wife, who was deaf. Uh, but he ended up inventing a telephone. He took it to Queen Victoria. She dismissed it as a fad. So he moved to America and lo and behold, yeah. you know, it was developed in the States. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm sure that, that what we're doing right now would not have been possible without that. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, my my dad used to work at work as a telecom engineer, so you know, um, and um, I, I I remember when 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 they first started, late, you know, sort doing the internet and stuff like that. You know, he's, he's mm-hmm. sort of like uh, he he didn't quite understand it, but he was quite blown away by it because oh, yeah. all, all my dad did, he he worked under worked under the ground and above ground laying the cables and stuff like that. Until he got got badly hurt, and then he uh, then he ended up working in an office um, as an office manager um, in in a car exchange sort of thing. So basically, um, the way it used to work is they, they used to sort of like put you you know connect your cars, and my, my my father used to manage one one of these exchanges where they sort of like connected your cars and stuff like that. Oh wow! But you know he's a um, but he was all, always interested in communications sort of thing, and he kind of passed it on to me a little bit. Well, that's, I mean, this, this is the age of communication, they say, you know, uh, um, whoever would have thought and dreamed, like, even maybe 10 years ago, but certainly not 20, 25 years ago, that we'd be doing everything on our phones. I mean, uh, I mean, will people, you know, 20 years from now even recognize what an old-fashioned dial phone is? Mm-hmm. I mean, will they comprehend that, you know? Yeah, I, I hate testing. 
<laughs> I hate texting. I hate Twitter. <laughs> well, that's something that uh, that I that I actually have because you know, people have asked me anytime there's a new version of Sherlock Holmes. I've, I've done nine Sherlock Holmes stories. Mm. I find him very very difficult to write, and um, it's hard to write somebody that's so much smarter than you are. Um, but he, um, one of the things I, that I that bothers me about the Sherlock show uh, is that he so relies on his phone. It, it made me feel almost like if you took Sherlock Holmes' phone away from him, he'd be helpless. Um, no, he wouldn't. He'd just Nick Watson's. <laughs> 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 that, that's a far. Otherwise, I think the show is a lot of fun, and I think their characterizations are excellent. You know, they you know, people have asked me when well, you know, Discover Batch play the real Sherlock Holmes. And I said, well, there is no real Sherlock Holmes; he's a fictional character. But as far as that's concerned, yeah, I think he's. I think that's he's as much Sherlock Holmes as anyone you know has ever been. Well, I'm I'm basically much happier in recent years with the with how Watson's been portrayed. You know, you know, by Paul Freeman and and Jubilar in the movies, and because to be honest, when you watch the old when you watch the old Sherlock Holmes movies with Basil Rathbone and even going on through Watson's kind of you know I don't know what it is but they, they seem to they seem to cast him as the uh, bumbling idiot by yeah. comparison yeah he was and, comic relief I mean uh uh, supposedly, the, the reason why that was done, particularly with the Rathbone series, um, was to just give Watson something to do because he really doesn't have a lot to do. If you read the original stories, he's our, he's the narrator; that's his job. So we don't really stop and think sometimes that you know Watson really isn't doing a whole lot in the story. He's just sort of an observer. And so I, you know, that was one way. I'm not give, making it as an excuse, but that's one way that they that's what that's one thing that they decided to do with Watson. Um, my favorite Sherlock Holmes is actually Jeremy Brett. Um, he's the most like the character that I that I see in my head when I read the stories. Um, I think and his, both of his Watsons were, were top rate. Yeah, I I've actually been on that. I've been on that set. Ah, really? Uh, for for two for twenty one B, you know, two twenty one Baker Street. I've been on the set um, where where Jeremy Brett shot those. It's actually. Well, it's not now, but it was in Manchester. Right. And, you know, for years and years, it was part of the Granada Studios tour here in, here in Manchester sort of thing. But I have actually been on that set. Um, mm-hmm. I met the actress up, you know, well, not sure if it was the same actress. They might have just um, hired an actress to do it as part of the tour. But, you know, I've, I've had a running with Mrs. Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, <laughs> and, and and stuff like that, and it's um and it's it was a really cool you know little thing I got to do back in back in the nineties was uh, go go and visit that set and um and and do the Granada Studios tour and you know I've never been back since even though it's right on my doorstep and I've I've, I've also walked down Coronation Street, <laughs> you know when when it used to be when it used to be in Manchester but but actually relocated it all now to Salford. Yeah, that's awesome. South Manchester. Yeah, it's uh, pretty cool. I mean, you, I you've. Would, I would like to have met him. You know, he played Dracula too, so that's, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think my favourite Dracula is still Christopher Lee. I love Christopher Lee an awful lot too. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, most people see Bela Lugosi as uh, as, as Dracula forever. Uh, which and I like as well. There's, they both have. It's interesting because they're both very, very different, and yet I think they're both they're both Dracula you know, to a degree. I think uh, I think probably Bagnanga goes is more the real life Dracula in a sense because he really embraced the role to the point where he he, he has to be buried in his Dracula yeah. costume. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Christopher Lee is, is has seemed to soften on it in more recent years, but he used to have a real problem even with the name being brought up. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I admire Tr- Christopher Lee tremendously. I think he's a wonderful actor. and uh, um, I mean, he was an amazing Dracula. He was, he, he's, he was a good Sherlock Holmes, too, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting that so many actors who played Holmes actually also played Dracula. Of course, 
his his friend Peter Cushing was a, an amazing uh, Sherlock Holmes as well. Yeah, and uh, you know another another role that Christopher Lee was amazing in was a uh, Frankenstein. Yeah, he, that's kind of what, the one that started him uh, yeah. started him off really, as far as the public was concerned. Well, I just watched that film a couple of nights ago. I've got it on Blu-ray because uh, I was sent sent it to review last year on Blu-ray and. Uh, I watched it for a second time uh, last night, um, as in second time since I got the Blu-ray, that is, because I've seen it many times, but, you know, you watch it, and um, he, Christopher Lee, you know, although he doesn't really have any dialogue as such, he just puts in an amazing performance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very fine pantomime performance, and um, at the time when that film came out, of course, Boris Karloff was still alive and, and very much in the public eye as far as that, that character. And so it, it goes to, to say even more for, for Christopher Lee that he was able to take uh, a very original spin on it. You don't really think of Karloff at all when you're seeing his, I mean, the makeup's very different for one thing, but it's just the way he approached the character. He is, he's got this kind of weird, kinetic, kind of twitchy uh, way of moving that's pathetic. I mean, you immediately, and he's scary, of course. But you immediately kind of feel sorry for him. I always thought his performance looked kind of like a, reminded me of something like a wounded animal. You know, you can't help but feel kind of sorry for them. Um, and that's what he's like in that. And he was, uh, uh, it's a very interesting movie. It's no more the the book than the Karloff version was, but it's uh, but it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, getting back on to you, I mean, you've, um, you've got, you, you've had several awards. You know, you're up for, you're up for some awards. You're up for, you've been nominated for the Rondo Award. Um yes. <laughs> as well as for the uh, Stanley Excelsior Award, uh, both for yeah. Halloween Legion. Um, what, what can you tell us about Halloween Legion? It's um, it's certainly something that I've you know I, I've not actually come across it. Um, so I'm just wondering if you'd mind uh, talking a little bit about that. Oh, that's all. Um, Halloween Legion was something that was uh, created really when I was still in high school. Um, I was I should have been paying attention in semantics class, and instead <laughs> I remember I was. Uh, scribbling things in my notebook and it was around Halloween and so I was drawing little uh, cartoons of like a you know a skeleton and a witch and a devil and a ghost and a black cat kind of the iconic uh, you know, archetypes of Halloween and I just kind of thought oh, this, this would be an interesting kind of like superhero team or something I remember thinking at the time what would I call them uh, and uh, I remember the, the Legion of Superheroes was popular then so I thought the Halloween Legion that sounds kind of cool ah, right. so, and then I kind of dismissed it you know I did I did more drawing on it I have um, I, I, I drew a cover like for a comic book uh, around that time which I posted on Facebook once or twice it's not very good but, <laughs> but it's uh, and the characters have evolved quite a bit since then um, and, and that just they kind of stayed in my mind but I never really did much with them um, until recent years, uh, Ron Hanna, who's the uh, uh, owner publisher of Wildcat Books, um, approached me with the notion of he wanted me to do to write a book for him, a short novel, uh, prose. And uh, he the incentive basically was it could be anything I wanted. I mean, he he was he stressed that he said literally anything, um, which sounds wonderful, but it was also kind of terrifying. I didn't know. I mean, there's just was so much to think about, you know. So I remember I had to take a couple weeks to even think about it. And then the Halloween Legion popped in my head, and I thought, well, you know, I originally conceived them for for comics, but um, but I'll bet they would work in prose. And so, uh, so I wrote it up, and um, it uh, it got some attention. And later on, when I was connected through uh, sequential pulp comics through Dark Horse. Um, I thought of the idea of, of uh, doing a graphic novel. Now, it's not an adaptation of the other one. It's a, it's a brand new story. Um, but uh, but I, you know, I think it worked out pretty well. Um, 
I own the, I, I created the series, but I co-own it with, um, uh, with artist Diana Lido. And, um, so we, um, we, we have some other things planned for it in the future. It's, it's one of my favorite things I've ever done. And it's, it very much owes a lot to Ray Bradbury's, um, atmosphere and some of his, uh, like dark carnival stories and so forth. I actually dedicated the book to him. Cool. Um, so um, it's uh, it it came out last September and uh, to five star reviews and promptly sold out. So oh wow! It's, it's very difficult to find copies of it. Um, I'm told that they may reprint it for this this coming fall, this coming this coming autumn. Uh, I hope so. Well, because... you know, it's been been nice and nominated, so they better they better have. Well, sorry, Excelsior, yes. <laughs> Excelsior, and Rondo. You know, I, and... I hope so. And and you know, if if we win the Stanley Award, uh, the the Excelsior Award, um, there's three of them, so we have three chances. There's a you know first, second, third prize. Uh, I, I think that will that will make the, the, the characters even much more prominent. I mean, I've got a lot of plans for them, uh, not just comics, you know, but I mean, I, I'm uh, seeing them as kind of a merchandising idea as well. Um, I, I was told early on by a lot of different people that tried to discourage me that, well, you're you're pigeonholing yourself by just focusing on Halloween. And I don't see that as, and, and, and the publisher to a certain degree has been kind of fighting me on that, um, that nobody would be interested in it unless it was around Halloween, which I disagree with. I mean, do people only watch scary movies during Halloween? I mean, um, seriously, no. I mean, it, and, and the story <laughs> itself does not take place at Halloween. You know, I made a very special point of, of showing that it's, it's like in the summer. Um, it's just, you know, it's not when it is, it's who they are kind of thing. And plus it's my idea of celebrating Halloween every day, uh, which is really what comes down to uh-huh. yeah i mean i i think hang, i think halloween's a lot of people's favorite holiday yeah what's well, mine it always has been um uh i preferred it to christmas even as a kid um it's hard to explain why i mean it's like same by you know same i have the same problem describing that as i do when people say well why are you so much of the dinosaurs things well i really can't explain that i mean why are they into football mm-hmm. i mean uh, i don't i can't explain it I, I think it's really difficult to explain why we like something yeah, well, I, I've I, I've gotten to the point now where, um, well, you like football, you know. I like this. I don't have to yeah. justify myself to you, you know. Yeah, I mean, really, I, it, I mean, I've had people. Uh, you know, the only thing I could I can explain. I mean, if I had to say something about both of those subjects, dinosaurs and and Halloween, and why and their their pull on me that they've had since I can remember uh, both of them actually, a uh, dinosaur simply because. Um, they're exotic animals. Um, they're like the monsters in monster movies, but they were real. Mm-hmm. Um, I find that just astounding. And Halloween, because I don't know, there's something about that particular night. Uh, and I've and as ever since I've been an adult, and of course I was holding this over from going out trick or treating, you know, which uh, uh, I don't know if that's done much in England. I've heard that it's it caught on for a while, and then it was kind of frowned upon. Um, um it, it 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 does happen here. It's usually teenagers, so you know, doing it for money, and you know, you know, so like, um, I I don't like I don't like the trick or treating sort of thing myself. I have a shotgun parked right near the door. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm joking, but um, what 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 one of the difficulties is in England with it is um, it kind of caught on because of the movies, you know, that were showing kids trick or treating in American movies and. Um, and and we can I think our kids kind of adopted it for a while. We still get the odd trick or treaters sort of thing, but I think I think um, on Halloween it's mostly really parties. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. we have that here in, in, in the the actual trick or treating ritual 
over the past 20 years or so has has waned and gained you know i mean some years you see nobody in other years it's real you know the streets are just flooded you know um but there's something i don't i can't you know there's something about looking out your window and seeing kids going from door to door wearing sheets and peaked hats and i don't know it, it does something to me i can't quite explain I don't. I don't mind if they're supervised by an adult. Yeah, well, that, you know? that, it always is, at least in my neighborhood. But you know, you know in, in, in this neighborhood, it's never the case. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I can understand why there's some cause for concern. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it just seems like there's real magic there. I mean, as much as you know, this is is there such thing as real magic? Well, yeah, of course there is. I mean, mm. the mere fact that we're here, conscious, even human beings talking to each other, understanding things, and some things. Is amazing. Well, the, the mere uh, fact that that the sky is blue, the mere fact that it rains and and stuff like that. You know, you, know, you call it what you want. I mean, but uh, it's it's a magical feeling, certainly. And um, but it, this, I mean, it's, everything is kind of a miracle. It's just, uh, it's incredible. We a lot of you know, most people take it for granted, and they just think that this, you know, they have all this coming to them, but they really don't. You know, we don't. We're we're really lucky to to be aware, to be alive, and to be aware of this. I mean, we we're perceiving a world. I mean, we don't know how in, in the whole vast universe, we don't know how many other worlds are like this, where where there you know creatures on it that actually. Can perceive it that they actually understand something of what they are and what they're doing there and understand their surroundings so we're, it's really kind of miraculous that we're here at all um you know however it happened i'm not sure uh, you know lots of people have their theories um i i don't know but uh, but here we are may as well make the best of it i think absolutely uh, so that there it is yeah um, another question i have is uh, how, how did you get into writing um you know the the comic strips for the uh, edgar rice uh, burroughs website i mean that's Quite, a, you know that that's quite um you know it's it's, it's quite 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 a claim to fame to have really you know in a sense. <laughs> well, thank you. It, it is. I mean, I I was astounded when it happened. Um, I, Burroughs has always been my favorite writer since I was probably thirteen. In fact, I've always been aware of him. I've, I've always known who Tarzan was. I didn't necessarily know who Edgar Rice Burroughs was. But I've known who Tarzan was. I don't remember ever being introduced to Tarzan. You know, I, I always knew who he was, it seems. Uh, mostly due to my older brothers, who were uh, big fans of the movies. And they were shown on Saturday afternoons here all the time when I was a kid. And uh, and they had the Tarzan comic books, too. Now, I didn't read an actual Tarzan book, one of the novels, Burl's Originals, until I was 13. And it opened up a whole different world for me. And then I realized he writes all this other stuff, too. Um, some of which I prefer to Tarzan, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's... Uh, what basically happened was uh, DRB Inc., which is a company that he founded. Uh, Burroughs was very forward-thinking. He, he um, trademarked himself and registered a Tarzan as a registered trademark and at a time when writers just didn't even think about something like that. Um, as a result, uh, the character has taken care of his, his family long after he's been gone. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it would have fallen into public domain by now. Um, so he was, you know, you always read these articles about how he was this failed businessman who started writing later in his life, like when, when he was almost 40, and then became a big success. And there's some truth to that. But seeing how he marketed himself and the Tarzan character in particular, I this was not a guy who knew nothing about business. He was very savvy. And uh, as I say, very very forward thinking, uh, uncanny in a couple ways. Uh, so he, he really kind of knew. And he, he took advantage of everything that he saw. I mean, uh, when motion pictures were just starting uh, around 1912, 1914, he saw that as a possible avenue for Tarzan. And of course, that's how most people know the character. Um, he When comic strips became popular suddenly tarzan was in the comic strips you know he, 
the image of Tarzan sold bread, it sold ice cream, it sold gasoline. I mean, he, any, anybody that wanted to pay for it, he was ready to license it for them. Um, it was amazing. So he, uh, they started up uh, a website, uh, I don't know, it's been two or three years ago, maybe. Uh, not, maybe two. I don't know, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. But anyway, they, they started one up with a new comic strip of Tarzan called The, the New Adventures of Tarzan. Uh, written by Roy Thomas, uh, who's uh, uh, something of a hero of mine, who I grew up reading his stuff. Uh, Roy's mostly, well, he, he's Roy's best known probably among comic readers um, as the, the writer of many Conan, uh, Robert E. Howard's character, Conan the Barbarian comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so he, uh, and he for a while, was the editor-in-chief in Marvel Comics, kind of took over from Stan Lee, was sort of his protege. And uh, Roy's a great guy. I got to meet him finally for the first time last summer at uh, the San Diego Comic-Con where I was on a Burroughs panel there, which was amazing. Um, but uh, what happened was I uh, the, the art's by uh, a fellow named uh, Tom Grinberg. It's quite uh, quite striking art, uh, very classic looking. Um, but the, the comic strip wasn't coming out very often. It was supposed to be weekly, and people were getting upset um, because it wasn't appearing when it was supposed to. And I was a subscriber, too. And uh, <laughs> what I ended up doing was um, is I, I worked up a... Uh, a proposal for John Carter of Mars, um, a comic strip of that with, with Pavel Marcos. And we, um, uh, I wrote it and he drew it and, uh, and it lettered, um, and colored and he, uh, uh, and I sent it to ERB Inc. and just with the idea that this was a proposal that, you know, this might keep people calm while they're waiting for the next Tarzan or whatever. And a few weeks later, I mean, it turned out that we couldn't use John Carter because it still had, uh, Marvel still had the rights under, uh, under control for the, the comic books. Um, it may appear uh, one of these days, though, but I don't think I'll be writing it, but uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. But uh, they offered me Carson and Venus, um, which I like, too. And uh, But I, I, I knew a, a, an artist, uh, uh, Tom Floyd, who has a background in Burroughs-related material and is one of my best friends. And I knew that he was the biggest Carson and Venus fan on the planet. And so uh, I called him up and asked if he wanted to draw it. And um, the rest is kind of history. You know, um, We started Carson and Venus and, and the, the, subscribe, uh, the subscribers um, increased considerably, I understand. So they asked me for more. And uh, the next property that I selected was uh, The Eternal Savage because I wanted to do a prehistoric epic. And uh, that's a good one. And I also chose it because Tarzan is a, uh, is a character in that book, too. He's... It's a little more than a cameo, um, but he's in there. And I made I made more use of him in the comic strip than he is in the book, though. So that was my way of sneaking Tarzan in. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, so I did that, and then they offered me um, the Mucker, which is a very popular Burroughs book. That's not been one that's ever commanded my enthusiasm that much. Actually, um, it's fine, uh, but I just didn't see the real visual possibilities of comic strip in the Mucker. Uh, since then, um, Ron Mars and uh, Lee Motor are doing the Mucker for for the site. And it's amazing. I mean, so they clearly saw something in it that I didn't because it's uh, it's incredible. One of the best ones there. Well, what and caught my eye the other day when I was looking through your Facebook, because we, we tried to connect last year and do this, but unfortunately yes. it just <laughs> saw like um, think things got so busy this end and on your end that it just wasn't pass- possible. But what caught my eye the other week, the other day when I was looking looking through your Facebook was you were uh, made a post um, about the land that time forgot. Mm-hmm. Now, I've never actually read the book. I'd love to. I'd love to sort of like try and try and get hold of it at some point. But um, you know, it's that that's a story. I remember the old Doug McClure movie that they did, and yeah. then they did a sequel <laughs> right. to it. The people that time forgot. Right. There's a third one too. The girls wrote called the called Out of Time's Abyss. It's a trilogy. Um, well, often, if you find a book of the Land of Time Forgot, it contains both the other books too. Ah. Uh, so it's it's three parts, and hopefully, I'll be doing all three. Cool. Um, on the site. 
Yeah, so, um, so, so you know, because I've never actually read the book, you, you obviously have, because you've got to, to you know, to sort of like be illustrating it and whatnot, to, to be to be writing it, sorry. Um, how, how, how much different from, from, from those, uh, from those old movies are, um, are, are the books, would you say? Um, you know, comic strips are, are a different animal than, than prose novels and movies, too. Um, so I'm I'm staying pretty faithful uh, to Burroughs' ideas. Um, as far as uh, his plots are concerned, I mean, I'm sticking very close to those. But the dialogue that you read and the, the narrative and the captions and so forth, that's all me. Uh-huh. I, I, I'm doing that purposely for a couple of reasons. For one thing, although I like them very much, there, you know, certain modern readers might find Burroughs' prose um, to be a little, you know, stiff, you know, um, a little, a little prosy, a little flowery, or whatever that doesn't seem uh, like something maybe someone in the 21st century would want to read. Uh, that's sad, but it's the reality of it. Um, so I thought if I handled the dialogue myself. In the narrative, um, it was. It's not so much that I'm adapting Burroughs as much as I'm collaborating with him, and um, uh, it, it's something that I enjoy very much. I like being able to put my words in their mouth. I mean, they're essentially saying what what he wanted them to. They're just saying it um, in a more modern context. Yes, even though I'm keeping the original time period, but I don't think most readers are going to be disturbed by that. I mean, I'm not being real, real modern or anything or hip, you know, or anything like that. But uh, still, I'm writing it in such a way that I hope will be more reader friendly. The people who uh, were they to pick up one of the original books um, and might be finding it a little stiff or whatever, um, whatever the problems would be with it. I don't know because I don't experience that when I read Burroughs. Um, but there are people, you know, who won't watch a black and white movie, you know, who, who won't uh, look at a book that's more than 10 years old. They just think it's no good. Yeah. That's very, very sad. <laughs> it's unfortunate. My, uh, my, my niece, who's uh, 12, is one of those people. And uh, my, my nephew, who's 18, also one of those people. Um, but with me, it's different. I was raised on, on black and white movies. Mm-hmm. Well, when I was a kid, you know, I... I I mean, my favorite stuff was like the original King Kong and, and Bride of Frankenstein and the, the Wolfman and, and stuff like that, which were old movies then, you know. I mean, they were already old movies. I knew they were old movies, but I thought they were more interesting than the new stuff I was seeing. I, I, I think what it is, is, um, you know, um, when, you know, certainly when you and I were kids, you know, television was still relatively young, mm-hmm. right? And um, they, they had the, you know, they had all these movies, black, both black and white and color, and um, you know, modern movies—they they, they weren't as readily available on on television as as they are now. Um, you'd, you'd maybe get see see a new film maybe um, over Christmas or Easter or during summer break, but the rest of the year round, the um, the broadcasters would show older films probably because it was cheaper. Yeah, yeah, and, they were cheaper yeah. roles basically, is what they were. And they needed to fill up broadcast time um, as well um, to justify the uh, uh, the sponsors and so on and so forth and their advertisers. Uh, but yeah, I, I I don't know. I I just thought it was more interesting. Well, well I think one of the reasons you get a lot of the youngins today are not into black and white films is because they they they've not had the same. You know, they've basically film and television's come along so much in the past sort of like you know thirty or forty years. Right. Um, in terms of what they can afford, and in terms of you know the movies they can afford to buy, but you know they um, they've kind of been spoiled, really, mm-hmm. in in a sense. Yeah. And well, the whole race is spoiled now. I mean, there are people who think clicking a mouse is hard work, you know. So it's uh, that's that's really kind of depressing. Um, oh, I have to click again, you know, like yeah. you're asking them to dig a ditch. You know, yeah, so. I've, I've got repetitive finger strain. 
it's ringy, it's ringy bad. <laughs> so, so that's how it came about. I mean, I, I write them. Uh, I enjoy it very much. I, uh, I've done an, enough of this kind of thing to where I just basically take the original books and I will read the next section and figure out, you know, where where the episode is in there and, uh, and decide to uh, to break it into panels and then I then I dialogue and send it off to the artist. And uh, so it's, uh, it's it's kind of an ongoing process. It can be. It can be uh, a bit overwhelming when you start getting to, getting into weeks and weeks and weeks of it, um, and you kind of want to want to break, you know. <laughs> but uh, but it's uh, it's been a great experience, and uh, I, I think it's actually in a lot of ways I think it's made me a better writer because I've had to. Uh, it's much harder to write something short um, and, and you know an attempt to make it meaningful than it is to write something long. It just it just is. It's hard to. Uh, to, to condense, you know, and, and have, have it have any impact. Mm. Yeah, and and these are uh, these Edgar Rice Burroughs comics. Um, just just for uh, people that are listening, they're they're actually available at www.edgarriceburroughs.com uh, forward slash comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, re- you know you can subscribe to me it's a dollar ninety nine per month, right? Yes, it's ridiculously low. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, do you just get the the, the the new comics for that that price, or do you also get you know the uh, back catalogue as well? Um, all, everything. It's all archived. Everything's available. Wow. Yeah. So I'd, I'd say one ninety nine a month. That's a bargain. It is. I mean, I, it, it's incredible. I mean, I, if. if 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 this had happened for me like twenty years ago, I would have thought I you know I was in heaven you know so, <laughs> um, I mean who misses really two dollars a month and uh, there's a lot there's a lot of stuff that's uh, there's got to be something in it for you I mean I I, uh, I chose the War Chief as one of the the comic strips too because it's a western and my father who's ninety years old loves westerns and I've never written one and uh, that's a particularly good one it was actually Burroughs favorite book of all the books he ever wrote so he, he held it in very high esteem himself and he didn't Burroughs was very self-depreciating he, he didn't take himself very seriously at all as, a, as, a, as an author he, he wouldn't call himself an author he was a writer that's the way he looked at it and his purpose very much like how I feel about it is just mainly just to entertain that's all he was after to do and uh, clearly he did it I mean Ray Bradbury called Edgar Rice Burroughs the most the most influential um, author of the 20th century, and he's probably right. If people know it or not, he's probably right. Well, you know, when you think about it, you know, both um, both Edgar Rice Burroughs and um, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, mm-hmm. you know, as well as H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, but I'd say mostly Conan Doyle and Burroughs. Um, you know, there's so many movie franchises and TV franchises that have actually spun out from 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 their from their stories. You know, you know, sure. Tarzan, uh, the land that time forgot that which we've already mentioned, um, and um, you know, Conan Doyle. We we had Sherlock Holmes, but we also had uh, the Lost World mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And you know, yeah, don't I, know how many I, times I, that's been. I wrote made. a pro story of Sherlock Holmes in the Lost World some years ago. Cool. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, and, and getting back to uh, the land that time forgot, which you asked me about that, I, will, I should probably add that one major contribution that I'm giving to that that's a little different than the original is that uh, to to the best of my ability, anyway, which is limited, um, the dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals that I'm showing in that are as scientifically accurate as we can have. Um, uh, paleontologist Phil Curry, who uh, is a paleontologist uh, for the, uh, uh, the Canadian paleontologist, I think he's in Antarctica right now looking for dinosaurs. Um, we met at the Dum Dum, which is the uh, one of the Burroughs conventions that they have every year. We met last last uh, summer and uh, became friends. And uh, I asked him basically to be sort of 
our official uh, consultant for the animals, and so he's actually suggested even colors as much as you can do that kind of thing. We don't really know what colors dinosaurs were, um, although it's known now that a number of them were feathered, and there is a way um, in a laboratory of determining the color of feathers, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, which is interesting. So we do know sort of what color some dinosaurs were, um, and uh, most of the feathers, by the way, appear to be black. Oh, wow. Yeah, um, black, gray, and red are the the colors that are coming out. There's a particular gene um, designated for each color that they can... uh that they can isolate in the lab so they can tell, well, these were feathers. So uh, this, these feathers were, were black or, or gray or red or whatever. And that seems to be what's what's coming out so far in the species they've been able to do this with, which have been very few. Um, uh, as, as a dino, dinosaur enthusiast, which I know you are, um, what do you make of, um, you know, I read, um, I read something on, you know, it was posted on Facebook a couple of weeks back. Um, about um, scientists in in Liverpool have actually successfully cloned a dinosaur. <laughs> I saw that too. And um, I think the picture that they had there was of a puppy, actually. Yeah, it looked like it looked like that to me. Actually, I thought, what the hell was I? <laughs> okay, that, that's that's uh, stuff and nonsense. You know, um, it, it's I I I I don't think that. I mean, I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to say never because uh, I don't know if I believe in never. Uh, but I don't, I don't think it's very likely. I don't think you'd want to do it even if you could. <laughs> anyone will clone a dinosaur. I mean, um, Jurassic Park is a lot of fun. And by the way, uh, one of the very first stories that I ever had published, uh, right after the one I just mentioned to you, in fact, uh, uh, that was in Australia, was a story called The Dinosaur Doctor, mm-hmm. which involved a scientist uh, isolating um, DNA from uh, from blood um, from insects in amber, and this was seven years before Jurassic Park was written. <laughs> oh wow! Now, now Crichton's book is a lot better than my story, but uh, but we and, and the thing is, is we were both equally wrong because you can't get DNA from red blood cells. There's no DNA in red blood cells, so mm-hmm. that wouldn't work um, at all. There's no way you could make it work. Um, so that's that's not a way to bring dinosaurs back. Uh, like Jeff Goldblum says in the movie, you know, just because we could doesn't mean we should. I, I I'm kind of in that in that camp. Yeah, so so, so am I because uh, you know, simply put, I don't want to get eaten. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. Uh, there's also the the more humanitarian idea of well, we're kind of like, we're, we're we're rather cruel to wildlife on Earth already, and rather indifferent to them, and so we're bringing back an extinct species without really any idea of, of what to expect. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that that's very likely. I do think it. I do, however, think that it's uh, quite likely um, that that mammoths will be cloned um, any day, furiously mm-hmm. for a decade or so. Um, that's something that's very, very different because they do have uh, soft material from mammoths that have been found frozen in Siberia. Uh, some of the, their remains are, are quite fresh. One uh, one mammoth, when it when it when it was thawed out, actually bled. Oh wow! You know, liquid blood, you know. So uh, and they have the contents of their stomachs. What they were eating is still there. It's it's amazing. Um, mammoths are essentially elephants. I know I mean, they are. I mean, their 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 closest living relatives are actually Indian elephants. Um, but they are elephants. I mean, some people have the are under the idea that that the elephants we have today evolved from mammoths and mastodons, and that's not true. Uh, the elephants we have today were actually around at the same time uh, as these guys. They're they're, they're ancient animals. Uh, there were lions, regular lions and tigers that were alive on the planet when the saber tooths were here. Yeah, I think I think there used to be certain tribes that worshipped elephants, right? Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, 
And I, I mean, I think it's very possible that, that that might happen. I'm not sure it should, though. I'd love to see one alive, but I don't know if I want to see it alive under those circumstances. Um, we don't know why the mammoths are extinct uh, still. Um, mm. At one point, the, pro- the prominent theory was that they were hunted into extinction. But uh, but with all the carcasses that have been found of mammoths, and they've been considerable, uh, there's no shortage of them, uh, you know, thousands, actually, uh, there's very rarely been any sign that these were hunted or killed. There's never been... There's very rarely been like like for example spear points found at that at the sites i, I really don't know that there were enough people to have killed every mammoth on the planet mm. uh, that, that would be a huge undertaking so i've always kind of sided with the idea that it was probably something a combination of climactic change and maybe you know plague also i don't think um i don't think hunters back then would have had the technology that hunters have now I mean, when you think it's quite easy to um, to hunt animals now to the point of extinction because of the technology yeah. we now possess, versus back then it probably would have been nothing more but spears and and um, and and a basic rudimentary bow and arrow or or a slingshot or something. Yeah, even even bow and arrow and slingshot would have been high tech for then. Um, it, I mean, we we know that that uh, the primitive uh, Homo sapiens, the Cro-Magnons, we know that they did hunt mammoths, but uh, you know, they did it in a very, I mean, you know, we're, 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 you know, we're ruthlessly clever. You know, they did it in a way that uh, caused them the least amount of worry, which usually, you know, was you know, digging a trap like, like elephants are sometimes hunted today still, sadly. And the, the mammoth would fall into it and then they would basically you know, use their spears or stone it to death, you know. If you had enough people there, one mammoth was not that big a problem if you could make it, uh, if you could make it helpless enough to where it couldn't trample you. Uh, and then, you know, one mammoth could set set up a whole tribe for a long time. A lot of meat there, a lot of hide, you know. Uh, so, uh, but I just don't see how they could kill them all, you know. Uh, they were, they, they were, there was, a, there was a, a great variety of different mammoths and mastodons that, that uh, were on every continent. And it's just, you know, where'd they go? Mm, yeah. Just, I, you know, so I, it might be a mistake bringing them back because we might be bringing back something that we're not prepared to deal with, um, that, uh, that we're not immune to. You know? So uh, that's just me. I'm in the minority there. And, and if somebody can make a buck out of it, they will. I mean, the, probably how, how people will see a dinosaur alive is something else that uh, that i've been reading about where they're talking about like taking a chicken and genetically altering it now it won't be a dinosaur but it will look something like it be a chicken um, soul yeah well there's <laughs> there's a there's a gene that all birds have for teeth and they'll just turn that back on yeah. and so um, uh, so it'll have teeth it'll have scales instead of feathers uh, it'll have a tail um, and uh, claws in the front set of wings and it'll essentially look like a dinosaur a therapy dinosaur yeah. um, or, i mean Really, though, if you want to see a live dinosaur, it's easy enough to do. Birds are dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not just the descendants of dinosaurs. They are dinosaurs. Uh, that's something that's hard for people to wrap their head around, but it's true. They are. Um, so they, the non-avian dinosaurs became extinct. But dino- mm-hmm. Yeah, my, well, uh, my, my cat really enjoys his dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, it's, it's every, I mean, I'm talking about all living birds. I mean, they all are. From parakeets to sparrows to hawks and eagles and ostrich, you know, they all are. Turkeys, you know, they all are. It's, it's kind of believable in a sense as well, because uh, when you look at the, you know, the way they, 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 the velociraptors moved in Jurassic Park and stuff like that, they move very much like birds do, mm-hmm. you know, they with, the, well, they, with yeah. the claws and stuff like that. So. And in reality, uh, 
velociraptors would have looked a great deal like birds. Um, we know that they were feathered now, and uh, they weren't nearly as large as the ones shown in Jurassic Park. Those are really based on a, another dinosaur called Dianonychus. Uh, but uh, a real velociraptor was about the size of a beagle, and um, you know some people would say, "Well, that's not very scary." But you know, it would look like a it would look like a roadrunner from hell. You know, I mean, it would have been a scary looking thing. And I mean, would you want to be a- alone in a room with a with a crazed beagle? I mean, you know, that's snarling at you and looks like no. Most people would not. So imagine four or five of them. Uh, you know, not not a not a pleasant not a pleasant place. Yeah, I think I think if you're in a room with a with a crazed beagle or five crazed beagles, uh, you won't be in that room for very long. No, no, I mean, you know, the, even even smaller dogs, middle middle sized smaller dogs, can be quite intimidating when they want to be, mm-hmm. um, and they're not necessarily trying to eat you. You know, they're just uh, uh, these guys would be. You know, so uh, they were probably in a lot of ways the true uh, the dromaeosaurs is what they're called, and they they were any anywhere from like the size of a chicken to uh, um, 20 feet long. That uh, they uh, uh, they were the, the really probably the true killers of the of the late Cretaceous. Although Tyrannosaurus rex was you know certainly around too, which uh, probably waited most of the time for them to kill something, and then it, then it went in and took it. But I, I I'm of the opinion that Tyrannosaurus rex was a hunter as well. Uh, I think it was just going to wait around for something to die before it ate it. You know, but you're talking about something that had the most powerful bite of any animal on the planet. It could bite through a school bus. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and plus had uh, depth perception, a really remarkable vision, which is something a scavenger doesn't need. Uh, so uh, I think that uh, I think that was, they were probably very, very formidable animals, uh, real monsters. You know, if you were to see one, I think it might be, be tri- quite traumatic. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Um, anyway, Martin, you've you've you're gonna be um, you're gonna be appearing at a few conventions in a uh, in, in in the next uh, couple of months, right? Yes. Um, do you want do you want to quickly uh, mention those for us? Um, yes, uh, thanks for bringing that up. I I'm going to be uh, guest. Uh, sadly, isn't happening in your country, uh, but it's uh, it's uh, kind of kind of moves around a bit. It's going to be in uh, Minneapolis this this year, and uh, they were uh, gracious enough to invite me there. Is they have they have a, an artist guest of honor every year and, a, and an author guest of honor. I'm the latter on that this this year. Um, I guess they feel that that my fiction has had enough of a of a British slant that uh, uh, that qualifies me. You know, it's with Sherlock Holmes, and uh, I've done uh, Dracula stories too. And there's a there's a, a British connection with Tarzan too. He's actually a British citizen. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, Lord Greystoke. So um, so there's that, and I'll be talking about that as well. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's it's a longer convention than I usually uh, I usually attend, but uh, should be a lot of fun. And that's in that's in Minneapolis, right? It is. It's at the end of May, uh, last weekend of May, and then the last weekend in um, June is the Eckhoff convention, uh, convention, which is a, a Grace Burroughs convention, and uh, they're flying a bunch of uh, of us, me, and some some of some of the other, not all, unfortunately, but several of the other uh, comic strip artists I'm working with. Uh, there uh, to uh, to celebrate that weekend. Um, so that's going to be interesting because there's never been so many Burroughs artists together at one point, I don't think. Um, so that's going to be there's going to be a little bit of a uh, history making thing there. Cool. Yeah. So that should that should be exciting. And um, and there's other things coming up too. Um, other just various summer cons that I'll, that I'll be at uh, around here and elsewhere. But uh, but those are the main ones really. Um. Do you, Do you have any uh, new 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 books or, or comic books on the horizon that that you'd like to quickly uh you know quickly make mention of? Oh uh, wow. Um, 
You know, something happened just yesterday, but I can't talk about it. I really want to. <laughs> right. Well, we can uh, always we can always bring you back just, on. Yeah, it literally was just yesterday. It, it dropped in my lap. Uh, it's really exciting, too. I was uh, talking to uh, the uh, editor-in-chief on that particular project until 2 o'clock in the morning last night. So it was, uh, we were both real excited. Oh, I think um, I was asleep then. <laughs> Yeah, oh, I don't see. So, um, uh, so there's that, um, which I can't talk about. Uh, and the um, I do ha- I write children's books too. I, I've written uh, like 20 children's books, and uh, I have uh, some of those that still have yet to come out that I've, I've finished, but they're being illustrated. Cool. Uh, the most prominent, probably, of them is a, a, a graphic novel of, of Robinson Crusoe. Um, so that that'll be out probably. I'm thinking the beginning, run the beginning of next year. Yeah, that that sort of thing probably wouldn't happen now. <laughs> no, and then, and then I also have uh, the the Tarzan book, the Jungle Tales of Tarzan, which is coming out from Dark Horse sometime this year. It hasn't been scheduled yet, mm-hmm. but it's finished and they have it, and so it's up to them to decide when they want it out. Yeah, already rang the comic store. It's pre-ordered. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thank you. Um, and uh, there's some plans too. For um, collecting the comic strips, the Edgar Rice Burroughs comic strips online into books themselves when the, when the when the original storylines conclude, uh, which will be coming up um, toward the end of the summer, actually, cool. and, and then hopefully we'll, we'll our contracts will be renewed and we'll go on and, and forward with the next the next. Um, but uh, that's that's been the plan anyway all along is to to eventually collect them. Uh, people ask me that all the time, and I always try to encourage them to go ahead and, and um, subscribe too, because that's really how Burroughs Inc. are, are paying us. Um, you know, we, you know, we do this for a living, so <laughs> we sort of need uh, need the money to uh, to survive, and so that's how they they actually pay us. And once the books are collected, there will be extra features and things, so it'll be worth double dipping. And it really is only two dollars a month. Yeah, um, the the you know when, when when you subscribe, you can cancel any time, right? Um, I think you can cancel any time you want. I mean, you not know. not that you'd want to. It's just that you know, well, it's it's always a question that people are going to ask because yeah, some people. You, just I, I think they're it. trying to work up some different plans too, to where you can maybe like pay for a whole year in advance or six months in advance and things like that too. Uh, they're trying to work out different different plans to see what works best yeah. for everyone. Yeah, because uh, I, you know, personally, I I'm probably more inclined to watch and go out and buy the physical book than, than read on yeah. read on the tablet or online or something because I don't yeah. really like reading off the, off the computer. I'm right. I'm a bit yeah. old fashioned. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I don't I don't really like it either. Um, I'm get, I'm getting to where I do it more and more because it's kind of a necessity. Um, but. Uh, I, the only thing, I mean, I've talked about this at different shows with various people and, uh, and among my own fellow creators. And, and the only thing that, uh, that I say over and over again is, uh, okay, we might not like it, but really this is the future, guys. And if we're going to survive in any, in any real sense at all as creators in this industry, we need to embrace this, not, not hide from it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, I like a real book as much as anybody does. I'm surrounded by several thousand of them right now. Um, and here in my in my studio, but uh, but this is this is what it is, you know. And um, it's it, it will get to be probably in my lifetime to where it's either online or nothing. Um, you know, it's that's sad to to think about. But I but rather than grumble about it and say you don't like it and you're and everything, I, especially when you're somebody like me that, that's doing this for a living, I think you have to embrace it. You have to see that. No, Burroughs would. I mean, if you were alive today, he would see the internet as as a, as a tremendous pop, you know possibility. Yeah, you probably. He probably would have jumped on board with uh, publishing through the internet before anyone else had thought of it. Yeah, I think he would have. You know, he would have seen something in it that uh, that he could exploit. 
Um, but you know, do I prefer real books? Of course I do. I mean, there's, um, I, I think part of the, the problem, you know, it's twofold. I mean, I see a lot of the younger people at the cons and they, they love the, the online stuff. I mean, to them, it's just really cool. And uh, they don't really miss the fact that there's not a paper um, thing in their hands, really, which I find a little odd, but that's how they see it. Um, and others that are older, you know, they want something for their money to carry away from them. But the analogy that I usually use is that when you go see a movie in the theater, you're not really bringing anything home with you. Mm-hmm. You know, you've experienced the movie, and then later it comes out on DVD or Blu-ray, and then you can buy that, and then you can watch it anytime you want. And that's kind of what, is you see it online first, and then later it comes out as a book and you buy it again, you know, and then you can look at it again if that's what you want. My, my, my problem isn't necessarily the fact that it's, uh, you know, through a device or anything. It's, uh, it's more to do with the, uh, you know, when, when you're reading off a computer screen, you've got the screen glare. Right, thing. right. You know, you tend, you know, when you're reading so like intensely off a computer screen for a while, um, I, I find that my eyes tend to be fatigued a lot quicker than it would be if I was reading off a written page. So, right. so if to, you know, I know that Kindles have been doing it. Um, you know, so if to do something where you know they could make it see so reading books or or comics off a, off a screen that's kind of like kind of more matte sort of thing, if you know what I mean. So, so right. it actually seems like paper. Um, I'd probably be much more inclined to, uh, to to sign up and not grumble about it. Right. Well, I mean, I, I don't like reading off the uh, computer because it makes me feel like I'm always at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but that's another reason as well <laughs> for me. Yeah. That's why I, I read as little online as I can, but I'm doing it more and more, I'm afraid, because it's what's available to me, and, um, you know, I, I kind of have to take advantage of it. But... Uh, but it is going to be. I mean, this is this is the future. Like I tell everyone, this is this is where it's heading, guys. It's not going to go back. Um, you know, it's, it's really not. If you don't mind me asking. Um, you know what what what's the subscription? What's the subscribership like for the um for, for the for the for the website? Is it is it holding its own? Um, well, I'm. I, they don't really talk to me much about that. Um, I'm always being told that that we can always use more subscribers, which of course is always going to be the case. Uh, so we certainly can. Um, there's, they're trying to blaze a couple, blaze a, uh, a couple trails with this. Really, I mean, there are a few other other sites like this, but nothing devoted to one author like this is. So it is kind of special. Um, and you know, all all the the artists that I chose to come to work with me. Uh, and I chose all the artists that I'm working with. It was, that, was, that was my decision. Um, the, I chose them for a couple different reasons. I knew them. They're friends of mine. I trusted them. I knew they would, they would deliver. And they were Burroughs fans. And so um, they, they were all quite enthusiastic to, uh, to come along with me uh, on this. So I've, I've been really lucky in that regard because they, they make me look like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and I wonder about that sometimes. So uh, it's, a great, it's a great group of, a great group of uh, people. Uh, they really are. And I, I'd be nothing without them, that's for sure. Um, most of them I, I managed to um, to recruit for the the Jungle Tales of Tarzan book too. Uh, so most of the the artists that I have working on the comic strips are actually also drawing Tarzan in in, in that book. Cool. So that worked out pretty that worked out pretty nicely uh, for me. Um, they were happy to do that as well. So. There's something about Tarzan in particular that seems to uh, appeal to artists. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's the fact that they don't have to bother with his clothes or whatever, but but really historically, there's been really some really fine illustrators that have been um, drawn to the character. Uh, I think it's I think it's probably to do with uh, you know the, the contours and shapes of the human body and and <laughs> drawing draw, drawing a muscular person, whereas. Um, you know, where you're putting clothes on, you're kind of obscuring that. Right, and, and I think that's part of the appeal of superheroes, too. 
um, at least when it used to be, they've kind of changed them. A lot of them where they're almost unrecognizable now. But I think the idea of the the, the skin tight costumes, you know, the, uh, what today we would call spandex, um, but the appeal to that I think was that essentially you were seeing them unclothed in a way. I mean, you were seeing the like you say the the, you know, the artists got to draw anatomy, which most artists love that. That's why part of the reason why they're artists. Um, so they're not drawing uh, just people wearing street clothes all the time, which can get kind of dull and tedious. Um, so it's you know, and the costumes are often kind of fun, but they're they're the comics are moving more and more away from that. I mean, I've written Superman and Batman too. Uh, but the characters are almost becoming unrecognizable today. They're, it's almost like uh, the industry is is ashamed of them in a way that where they're trying to figure out some way of updating these characters. And uh, I mean, the first thing they did with Superman was take his, his red shorts away. You know, yeah. like like that was somehow silly. What you know, is it sillier than anything else? Though, really, I mean, come on. <laughs> they they kind of put him in a pair of jeans as well at one point, I think. Um, but you know, the origins of the red shorts um, is kind of interesting. So not you know not your um, circus. Um, uh, weight, in circus performers and weightlifters used mm-hmm. to wear sort of like um, kind of like a leotard with a um, with a pair of shorts with a pair of a uh, you know swimming trunks or shorts over the top. Right. Yeah, so. that, and that's what his, that's what his suit was based on. It was like circus strongmen. You know, um, there's a real reason for that actually. <laughs> but I think just visually, it, the red trunks, you know, kind of broke up the blue, and I just think it just um, you know, artistically, I think I think it balanced the suit out. Without it, I think he really looks like he left his house and forgot his shorts. <laughs> Um, I mean, every time I see him without the shorts, that's the first thing I think of is, boy, he must have went out of the phone booth really fast. You yeah, know? must be cold uh, down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it just it's it's sort of like, so so it's not silly that he can fly and, and shoot lasers out of his eyes, but it's silly that he's wearing red shorts. I mean, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, I'm wondering if they just took his red shorts away because I kind of figured, oh, well, he can, he can, he can fly and move out at the speed of sound or speed of light or whatever. You know, I wonder if they kind of saw logic before. Oh, well, if we take his shorts away and it gets a bit chilly down there, uh, maybe it'll go a bit faster. <laughs> well, they well they took them away from everyone. I mean, they, Batman doesn't have them anymore. Anybody that was wearing the, the little shorts, uh, is go- they're gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Okay, well, Martin, it's been great speaking so, to you. It's been yeah. fantastic having you on the show, and um, oh, you know, you. hope to have you on again sometime. It's been really good. It's been really cool uh, talking to someone about dinosaurs as well as uh, as well as work. <laughs> You've been doing our books and, and everything else. So. I have a lot of interests, so, but thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun, and, and um, you know, um, best of luck with the um, with the books and, and you know the the Excelsior Award. You know, it'd be great if you won that. Well, yeah, thank, so. you. thank you. I hope so too. Fiction, drama, and vision stories that were happening where no one had gone before. 
discovering and exploring other worlds far, far away. While many of these series and films became cult classics, somewhere along the way, this genre got lost. Imagine if there was a place where you could go watch exciting new space opera series made specifically for the niche audience that you are. Imagine if this place was conducted by a team as passionate as you about science fiction and who would use all their background experience to make sure you get the best entertainment possible. SOS is a not-for-profit independent production facility that brings together writers, special effects wizards, and other creative talent from around the world who've worked on some of the most recognizable and respected science fiction franchises. So throw away your remote control and get real control by joining the Space Opera Society right now. With as little as one dollar, you can change the future of entertainment today. For more information, please visit our website, which is, of course, spaceoperasociety.com, where all your questions will be answered in our frequently asked questions page, and don't miss our short video presentation from some of our space opera series in development. I'm going to step off the limit. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It's science fiction. That will blow your mind. This is SFP. Now. Well, that about wraps things up for this week. Um, we're, we're sort of working on getting more interviews, but in you know, the next week we've got a you know a couple of other specials planned. Um, we're just going to have a, a general you know discussion um, about science fiction franchises and and this and that moving forward next week. Um, and uh, jo- joining me for that, hopefully, will be uh, Patrick Hayes. I've not told him about this yet, so you know this is the first he's hearing about it right here, right now. <laughs> Well, we're gonna see, see if we can get Patrick on and um, and do do a general roundabout knockabout science fiction and comic book discussion show. Um, I might even try and get another guest in on it as well from from our uh, regular song like uh, contributors to the uh, to the podcast. But you know, rest assured, we are working on more interviews. Um, you know, we we got more in the works. It's, um, it's just that these these things are actually getting harder and harder to do. <laughs> Um, partly because um, my, you know, my time isn't my own anymore, and um, also because you know, so like um, you, you kind of have to look for people that have, that have got something current to talk about. But we do have a few things, you know, in in in, in the midst. So keep your ears uh, to the ground for the bike now. Offer the world order. 